The pastor theologian pursuing the intellectual life for the sake of shepherding the flock. My assumption is you're here because you belong to one of three categories, either category one, you're unpersuaded by the model, you're unpersuaded that the pastor must be the pastor scholar, and that's okay, Uh, you're seeking answers to the question why, or you're in the second category, which is that you're somewhat persuaded of the model and you want to know how better to pursue it, and that is asking the question of how, and that's good also, or... Uh, Category number three, you don't know the campus very well and you're lost and you ended up in the chapel where you meant to be somewhere else. Uh, You're welcome and I've asked the guys to shut the door so you're you're trapped, you have to be here now, you help make the chapel look fuller. Uh, My time is limited, what I hope to do is to split it roughly in half to first of all try and answer that why question, to think through why we should think of the pastor as the pastor scholar And then secondly, to give some exhortations towards the how. How do we best do that? What I'm arguing for today is that pastors, elders must consider their role to be primarily, first and foremost, an intellectual pursuit. uh, One that demands sustained, rigorous thought as the necessary and the best foundation by which we fulfill all other expressions of ministry in the local church. Uh, responsibilities of discipleship, evangelism, counseling, preaching and teaching, and so on and so forth, the most effective pastors and elders will be those that approach their roles in the church as first and foremost an academic pursuit. Uh, I'm not making any claims today that the pastorate is exclusively an intellectual pursuit, Uh, that the only thing necessary in order to be an effective pastor is the pursuit of rigorous thought, I want to acknowledge that a good pastor needs to have many strings to his bow. Nor am I making any claims that in order to be a good pastor, you have to be exceptionally competent academically. We understand that the Lord has blessed different men in different ways, and some pastors and elders will not be as competent academically as others. That doesn't mean you can't be a good pastor or elder. What I am arguing for is a perspective, uh, that we have a perspective, a view of the pastorate, which considers the role of shepherding God's people to be first and foremost, above all things, an intellectual calling. Now, is that perspective valid? Is it justified? Is it warranted? Uh, Many of you will know the book that was published a number of years ago. It was actually part of one of the Shepherds Conference giveaways Uh, titled The Pastor Theologian by Heinstead and Wilson. And they do a good job. I'd recommend the book to you. They argue for the pastor theologian, the pastor scholar, based upon the testimony of church history. So they trace out the, the consideration of the pastor throughout church history and show that with a few exceptions, in large measure, it has always been thought of as an intellectual vocation. Uh, They suggest that it was the Enlightenment that sparked the perceived bifurcation today of the pastorate and the academy. And like I said, I would recommend that that book to you. I want to take a slightly different approach today, not so much leaning on the testimony of church history, but thinking about what scripture has to say about academic intellectual uh, endeavors and whether we can make a case from scripture for the pastorate being the the intellectual calling that I'm arguing for. 
How do we do that? There's many ways we could do it. I want to trace out the meta-narrative of Scripture from beginning to end, particularly as it relates to three themes. There are three themes that I want to consider to see how they intersect and based upon those observations across the meta-narrative of Scripture, make one point of application, and that will be the application towards the pastor being the pastor theologian. So with that in mind, please, if you have a Bible, turn to the very beginning of the Scriptures where all good meta-narratives begin. We're going to start in the garden, and the first theme that we're going to look at is the concept of image. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, First question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And here we don't have the privilege of leaning upon any kind of biblical precedent. David Kleins in his seminal work on the image of God said that scarcity with which the doctrine is mentioned is out of all proportion to its importance. There are very few references in the Bible to the image of God, and this is the very first one, so it means we cannot go back to previous scriptures to try and understand it. What we can do, and what many scholars have done, is to look outside of the Bible at the ancient Near Eastern context within which Genesis was written to see if there's any testimony concerning the idea of image, and there is. When you study Mesopotamian and Egyptian ideology, what you see is that there are many documents that testify to the idea of image, and they always do so in a representative way. So a king would be described as the image of his God. He would be the representative of the God that he worships. In turn, as that king conquers new lands, he would set up his image Uh, Normally, by way of a statue, the statue didn't even need to necessarily look like the king, but the idea is this represents the fact that I have reign in this area, and if you fail to bow down to the statue, it would be tantamount to treason, failing to bow down to the king. So the concept of image within the ancient Near East is one of representation. That has implications for our understanding of Genesis 1.26. First and foremost, I want to suggest an alteration to the common translation of this verse. ESV reads, let us make man in our image. I would suggest that that preposition there is what we might call a bet essentia or an essential preposition. The translation I'd recommend is let us make man as our image. Let us make man as our image. The idea is that the image of God primarily speaks to our function, It is existential in its concept more than it being ontological. It speaks about our purpose rather than our being. We often think of the image of God as connoting the idea that we somehow possess the communicable attributes of God. Though I think that is theologically true, I don't believe it to be bound up in the concept of image. Rather, I think that comes about through the augmentation of that verse. As Moses writes, let us make God in our image after our likeness. The idea of likeness, I do think, connotes some kind of reflexive um, substance to our nature. We reflect the communicable attributes of God. The idea of image is one of purpose, of function. We are to represent him. We could go on and say more than that, it uh, implies that mankind has a kingly role. Uh, In the ancient Near East, the idea of image was only ever attributed to kings. 
Here, God makes Adam in his image as his image. Adam has a kingly function in the garden. Now, what does that mean? That leads us on to our second theme that we're going to be tracing out, the first being image, the second being commission. What does it mean that Adam, that mankind is made as the image of God? Well, the the text goes on, let him have dominion. Let him have dominion. The idea is ruling and authority over the created order. And again, the idea is repeated in 128. God blessed them. The content of the blessing there, I believe, refers back to 26, the creation as his image. And then God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. He is to exercise his authority as God's representative in a kingly way. Now, I know these are familiar verses, but let's think about them carefully, particularly the relationship between the commission and the image. God is saying to Adam, you need to rule over creation and subdue it. We do have biblical precedence to understand that more fully, namely the first part of Genesis chapter 1. What we see God doing is ruling in such a way to bring order out of chaos. So the earth was formless and void. That's a reference to the chaos on the earth, and God creates order. He creates order in such a way that life then flourishes. So as God says to Adam, I've made you as my image, as my representative, you are now to do as I have done. You are now to rule over the created order in such a way to bring about life and life that flourishes. The question then becomes, well, how does Adam do that? And that leads us on to the third theme that I want to consider, image, commission, and now finally knowledge. The way in which Adam successfully rules over creation and subdues it as the image of God is in large measure, though not exclusively, in large measure through the correct appropriation of knowledge. Now, I think we know this conceptually, experientially already uh, before... I came to TMS, I served in the Royal Navy, and I would on occasion find myself in a foreign country interacting with other navies, other naval officers. And I would always be representing my captain, my commanding officer. And in those interactions with other naval officers, the question would never be, what do you think? The question would never be, what are your views on this? The question would always be, what does your captain think? What is your captain's policy on this? What are his goals? I was there as his representative, and in order to be a successful representative, I had to have the knowledge of his goals and his aims, and I had to appropriate appropriate that knowledge effectively, communicate it well in order to be a successful image bearer, you might say. We see this concept played out negatively when we come to Genesis chapter 3. So God has already told mankind what he expects of them in Genesis 2, verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's the impartation of knowledge. And then we get to Genesis 3 and we see that Eve misappropriates it. The servant questions her and in response Eve says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden... So she's then minimized the privilege because God said you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
She says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. She's there, maximize the prohibition. And then finally, she says, lest you die, minimizing the judgment. God said, you shall surely die. So central to the fall is the misappropriation of knowledge. And what we see is that as Eve mishandles that information, it results in a failure on her part to fulfill the commission. The commission being rule over the created order. And the result is, as she mishandles the knowledge, that the created order rules over her, that the serpent rises up. That then leads to the specific offense, which again involves the idea of knowledge as Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, of it, good and evil. Therein, I take it to be that they're pursuing a knowledge and understanding apart from a dependence on God. They were to receive their knowledge, they were to receive their understanding from God, and as they eat of the tree, they're seeking knowledge and understanding independent of God. Question, which, how, do those three themes change after Genesis 3? The answer is that the image doesn't change. So again, there aren't many biblical references concerning the image, but what we do see is that when it is mentioned, it is clear that even after sin enters the world, man continues to be created as the image of God. So Moses talks about it in the context of the Noahic covenant. He says, you shall not spill blood, Why? Because man is created as the image of God. We then read about the image of God in 1 Corinthians as Paul talks about order within the church and he says man is created as the image of God. And then, of course, James in chapter 3 says, be careful with your tongue. Why? Because man is made as the image of God. So the image does not change even after sin enters into the world. The commission doesn't change. In fact, Genesis 1.28 is the most attested to text in all of Scripture. If you're reading well with your eyes open, you cannot help but notice hundreds of allusions and recapitulations of the commission. Noah's given the imperative, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Abraham is told within the context of the covenant, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply your descendants. Jacob is told, be fruitful and multiply. The Israelites in Egypt are described as filling the land, being fruitful. In the wilderness, Moses gives the law and he says, if you obey this law, then you'll flourish, you'll be fruitful, you'll fill the land. And then the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, and Daniel all look forward to a time when Israel will be regathered and they'll be fruitful and they'll multiply. The commission doesn't change. And that stands to reason if our function is still the same, being made as the image of God, then our responsibility as that image bearer is to make God known through the filling of the earth and subduing of the created order. Post-Genesis 3, it is the idea of knowledge that changes. Or more specifically, it is our ability to correctly appropriate knowledge that is hindered by the fall. And so what you see after Genesis 3 is a continual failure on the part of mankind to know as we ought to know. Genesis chapter 6, God says the thoughts of their heart were only ever evil continually. We read in Isaiah 1, judgment is coming. Why is judgment coming? Because my children do not know me. They do not understand. 
Now, you could argue that this is relational knowledge in view, and that may well be the emphasis, but relational knowledge is always predicated upon intellectual knowledge. You get to the book of Ezekiel, all about the presence of God and God restoring his people back to the Edenic presence. And all the way through the refrain, both in judgment and salvation passages, is then they will know that I am God. It is through the work that I am doing in this people that will bring them back to the fullness of my presence. And in that day, they will know as they ought to know. And it's for that reason that after Paul's glorious presentation of the gospel in 1 through 11 of Romans, he says, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Now, there is one point in redemptive history when we get fairly close to a restoration of knowledge. And that comes within the reign of Solomon. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. A number of commentators have noted how the Solomonic reign is written through an Adamic lens. We're told about King Solomon and his reign in Adamic terminology. So what we see is that he is bearing the image of the king in the way that Adam should have done. He ruled over Israel in such a way as to allow life to flourish. In chapter 4, we read, he had peace on all sides around him, verse 24. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Bathsheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. This is an Edenic peace and security. Notice at the end of chapter 4, verse 33, Solomon spoke of the trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of the beasts and the birds and the reptiles and the fish in the same way that Adam named those same entities. Not only that, but the consequence of Solomon being an effective image bearer representing God in Adamic proportions Chapter 4, verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. The result of Solomon being an effective image bearer is that the commission begins to be realized. Now, what is the trigger that unleashes that kind of reign? What is the trigger that allows Solomon to image bear effectively and for the commission to be realized to some measure through him? And the answer is, of course, chapter three, Solomon's prayer. What does he say? He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, or literally a listening heart, to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Now, don't miss the collocation of terms there. We say that Solomon prayed for wisdom. He didn't pray for wisdom. Be careful with the text. God grants him wisdom. He asked for discernment between good and evil. Why is that important? It seems to be an intentional echo back to Genesis 3, where they took of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. It seems like Solomon is saying, God, I want to know and to understand in a way that Adam did not. I want my knowledge to be dependent upon you. I want you to give me the understanding between good and evil. And I don't want to pursue it independent of you. And that is the prayer that leads to him bearing the image of God successfully 
and realizing that commission, though in part, and of course we know that Solomon ultimately failed. Ultimately, his heart was given to many foreign women and in turn to their gods. And so after the testimony of his reign, we're left awaiting that perfect image bearer that fulfills the commission. There are many other places we could go to see the intersection of these three themes in Scripture. Image, commission, and knowledge. I think the clearest place, at least for our purposes today, is to go forward now to the letter of Colossians. Turn to the letter of Colossians. Paul is writing to this church in Colossae. He's happy with them. He's thrilled by the ministry that's happening amongst them. Though, at the same time, the church is being threatened by what we refer to as the Colossian heresy, Regardless of what you think the Colossian heresy was in its details, we could say it was a misappropriation of knowledge, some kind of distortion of the gospel. And so Paul combats that threat, how? By declaring the supremacy of Christ. Specifically, as Paul declares the supremacy of Christ, he declares Christ to be the true and better Adam. And so what we see when we read through the letter to the Colossians is, again, lots and lots of allusions back to the garden, lots of Adamic theology. Notice with me Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, talking about the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Paul is picking his verbs with much precision here. That's an allusion back to the commission. And he's saying the gospel is now realizing the commission. It is bearing fruit and increasing. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. That's an abstract thought because it was originally given to a man. And here it's being given to the gospel. How can that be? It's because the gospel centers upon Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, verse 15, he is the image. How is it the gospel can realize the commission? It's because Jesus Christ is the perfect image bearer. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, at least in part an allusion back to Genesis 1. Now, Paul adds the word invisible because I think he wants to place a particular emphasis on the incarnational reality of Jesus' ministry. But he's declaring Jesus to be the perfect Adam, and then he He substantiates that with the next phrase, the firstborn of all creation. This is not a reference to temporal priority, but relational authority. The idea of firstborn coming from Psalm 89, he's saying he rules over creation, just like Adam. Now that does create the question of how can Christ succeed as the perfect Adam, the perfect image bearer, where Adam failed And the answer comes in verse 16, for by him all things were created. Or if I may paraphrase, because he is God. How can he fulfill that functional um, reality of image bearing? It's because of the ontological reality that he is God. Notice the consequences of his perfect image bearing. Verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Christ brings order where there was chaos. What does that mean for us? What are the ramifications for us? Will we turn over to the practical instructions, the ethical implications that Paul gives in chapter 3? And there are many 
But just notice verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, a reference to Adam with its practices, and have put on the new man, that is Christ, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The implications is that for us who cling to Christ, who find our union in Christ, we need to pursue the correct appropriation of knowledge as the means by which we successfully bear the image of God and play our part in the realization of the commission to make his glory known. Now, all of that work leads me to one single point of application, and that is this, that as pastors and elders in the local church, we have to understand as much as we are trying to lead God's people towards God's glory, in large measure, not in totality, in large measure, our role must be an intellectual endeavor. It must be the pursuit of knowledge, the correct appropriation of knowledge, in order that we can teach people how to better bear the image of God so as that our ministry and our churches will assume their place within redemptive history, filling the earth and multiplying through the work of the gospel. It is when you do that and you assume that perspective of the pastorate that your church and your ministry will start to strain towards the eschatological reality that Habakkuk talks about when he says one day the whole earth will be filled, don't miss the illusion, one day the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It is for that reason that we must begin with sustained, rigorous thought as the means by which we go about the pastorate. Now, all of that was to answer the question why. What I want to do with the remainder of the time is to think through the question of how. How might we better go about realizing that model of the pastor the, uh, theologian, the pastor scholar? To begin with, I want to just step back and say that I would issue these exhortations to you men with the utmost humility and the utmost caution. And the reason I say that is because my job right now is not to pastor a church. I do serve as an elder at Grace, and uh, my job is to think and to read and to write and to teach at the seminary. So I give you these exhortations knowing that I do not have the burdens that many of you men do have, the burdens of counseling in the local church, the burdens of preaching week after week after week. But as God has allowed you, as he has given you uh, the specifics of your schedule, I would encourage you to think towards how you might better pursue an intellectual life as a means of shepherding the flock. As a foundation, I would say think of yourself both as teacher, but also as example. Teacher and example. Why do I say that? Because there's a real danger that the pastor of the local church only ever seeks to think and to study in order to serve up the next sermon. There is a real danger that you only ever engage with sustained, rigorous, intellectual thought because on Sunday they're going to be here and I have to have something to say. It is important to understand that there is value in study for study's sake, apart from the next time you have to speak, the next time you have to present your thoughts. 
I do believe there is a work that is done in you simply as you engage with sustained, rigorous thought. This is why when a student comes to me at the seminary, wrapping up his MDiv and says, should I stick around for a bit longer and pursue the THM? Normally, circumstances permitting, I would say yes. And it's not because doing the THM is going to give you more speaking opportunities, and it's not because doing your THM would allow you an opportunity to publish your thesis. It's not for any of that. I imagine that whatever you write your thesis on, you're probably never going to give a sermon on it. And if you do, you'll bore the congregation to death, so please don't. The point is to pursue the THM and to write a thesis and to engage in that sustained level of thought is going to further shape you as a man of God. It's going to shape your character. It's going to do a work inside you that you can't quite discern, but will be of benefit in some way to your ministry and the people that you minister to. So consider yourself as a teacher and an example, one who must be pursuing study for the benefit that it does both in you and then also, of course, through you. Three exhortations, big picture, uh, broad level. The first is simply free yourself from all distractions. You must free yourself from all distractions. Rigorous thought takes time. You cannot engage at a meaningful level if you are merely passing by. Sertiange, in his book, The Intellectual Life, a classic, says, do you want to do intellectual work? Begin by creating within you a zone of silence, a habit of recollection, a will to renunciation and detachment which puts you entirely at the disposal of work. Acquire that state of soul unburdened by desire and self-will. Without that, you will do nothing, at least nothing worthwhile. You must consider solitude to be your friend. Not solitude for solitude's sake, but solitude for the benefit of the church. Indeed, Sertiange goes on to say, your congregation need to consider your solitude as much to their benefit as your companionship. Now, I think this point in church history, we have to fight for this more than ever. We have to learn how to shut down the email, shut down the texts, any avenues of social media. We have to learn how to say no to unnecessary meetings and put away the tyranny of the urgent simply so that we can be alone and think. And it is a discipline that must be learnt. Secondly, and this will sound slightly contradictory to what I've just said, we must pursue corporate learning. We must pursue corporate learning. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, simply that we benefit from the thoughts of others. Indeed, I think it's of the utmost folly to suggest that we might advance in our own understanding if we don't first leverage and lean upon the thoughts of those that have gone before us. It does not necessarily mean that your learning is always with somebody else present in the room, though that can be a great advantage. Simply to have a ministry partner that knows the trials and the ordeals of sustained rigorous thought and is working silently beside you can be a great encouragement. But apart from that, you need to engage with the written word. You are learning corporately with those that have gone before you. You need to read. You need to choose your learning companions carefully. 
Men do not read only those who agree with you. Learn the skill of critical engagement. Read those who you know disagree with you and allow them to sharpen you and to provoke you into articulating why you think you're right and they're wrong. In addition to that, read those who are approaching your topic or your text from a different angle. Now, what I mean by that is that I'm amazed by how many pastors prepare their sermons by using only commentaries. Now, commentaries are great, but commentaries do one job. If you get a good commentary, it's going to explain the meaning of the verse in its immediate context. Wonderful. If that's all you use, your thoughts concerning that verse will be very flat. We have to learn to read widely and read from many different angles. Use theologies and biblical theologies and journal articles and monographs and all that you can get your hands on in order to prompt your thoughts about the subject matter. Now, beyond the discipline of reading, I would encourage you towards also speaking and writing. Francis Bacon famously said, reading makes a full man, conference, that is speaking, makes a ready man, and writing an exact man. When I encourage you towards the end of speaking and writing, I'm not talking just about your Sunday sermon and your weekly blog post. I'm encouraging you to pursue those avenues of speaking and writing that will place a very high expectation on you, to pursue those avenues because you cannot overestimate the learning value that comes simply through having to articulate your thoughts with the utmost precision. So pursue as far as you're able, not just reading, but speaking and writing. Finally, third exhortation, learn how to ask good questions. Learn how to ask good questions. We live in the information age, and it is to our detriment. We have more information at our fingertips than ever before, and it does not help our learning. It doesn't help our thinking. Google has all the answers. Siri will tell you whatever you want to know. And what that does is that it is teaching us as a society to stop pondering, to stop thinking, and to stop asking questions. I think it would be true to say that most people in the pews on Sunday are not asking questions of the text. And if they are, they're normally asking the wrong questions. Now, how do you ask a good, 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 good question? What is a good question? Uh, Dorothy Sayer, in her well-known journal article, The Lost Tools of Learning, guides us towards some helpful principles. We need to ask questions that prioritize understanding over information. That is the why over the what. We need to ask questions that seek clarification over amalgamation. That is to say, a fuller grasp of a few things is preferable to a simple collection of many things. And then finally, we need to pursue synthesis rather than separation, meaning we need to ask questions that probe the nature of the relationship between one idea and another rather than compartmentalizing them and suggesting that they remain in isolation. Free yourself from all distractions, pursue corporate learning, and learn to ask good questions. 
big picture exhortations. I would encourage you even after this seminar to chat to those around you and ask how they, in accordance with their schedules, have sought to pursue sustained rigorous thought. My encouragement is that you would understand your calling as a pastor, as an elder, to be primarily, first and foremost, above all things, an intellectual pursuit. Because it is by pursuing knowledge and the correct appropriation of knowledge that we learn how to better image God, how to better represent him, that we can lead others in that like manner. And in so doing, then our ministry and our churches assume their place in redemptive history to make God's glory known the whole world over. I'm going to pray to close and then I'll be up the front if you'd like to chat and ask questions. Father, we give you thanks for our time together, uh, so short, and yet uh, we're, we're just amazed that, that you would save us to bring us into a relationship with you and to give us these gospel responsibilities to make you known. We think especially of the, the role of pastor and elder in the local church, and we understand that there's so much involved, that it is not merely the life of pursuing knowledge, but there is so many other things that we must do as pastors and elders in the church. And yet at the same time, there does seem to be in your word an emphasis on knowing, on understanding, as the foundation by which we carry out our responsibility as Christians. Please help us to this end. I do pray for these men here. You know the details of their schedule. Father, please help us to think through how we would pursue that model the model of the pastor-scholar, one that thinks deeply in order to best serve the people. We need your grace and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.